Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watts Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show for the weekend of August 7th through August 9th, 2020. My name's Paulo, and I'm your host. So this past weekend, I actually had a box office first of my own. I took a trip outside of New York, upstate, uh, you know, just get away from the city for a little bit. And over the weekend, I went to my first ever drive-in theater. I mean, having lived for the last 10 years without a car in college and in New York City, I never really had the opportunity to go to one before. So I made use of the rental car that I had. Uh, Sat out to the Glen Drive-In Theater in Queensbury, New York. Uh, I ended up watching the 1987 classic Dirty Dancing. Could have stayed for the double feature with Ferris Bueller's Day day off, but uh, we had an early drive the next morning, so I needed to get some sleep. Uh, on the other screen, they have two screens. On uh, You could dial it on your FM radio. On the other screen, they had Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark as the other double feature. Uh, in any case, 10 out of 10 experience, and I'm already planning uh, you know, to include it on my itinerary next time I go back up uh, towards Queensbury. But uh, personal movie experiences aside, there are a, there's a lot of box office news uh, for the industry this week. So I'll try to be as thorough as possible and also concise. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm going to bring back a, on, a segment that hasn't been around for a while, the box office concepts. But it's a lot to cover, so let's just hop right in. So, uh, first off, uh, pretty much right after I released last week's episode, Disney's had their earnings call, and they dropped a major bomb. Uh, the long-delayed live-action remake of Mulan will be coming directly to Disney Plus on September 4th. Uh, this is supposed to be accompanied by a theatrical release in markets where movie theaters are open that do not have the Disney Plus app in their geographic region. Uh, exact details TBD. Uh, what's more, instead of simply being available on Disney Plus for all subscribers, uh, consumers will need to pay an additional $30 in order to have access. Now, unlike normal PVOD rentals, those are about $20 for a 48-hour rental, this one-time $30 payment will grant you access to rewatch the live-action Mulan movies as many times as you want, as long as your Disney Plus account stays active, of course. So, a lot to unpack here. First off, in addition to last week's news that AMC and Universal have struck a deal to attempt to squeeze the theatrical windows down to only 17 days, as well as you know Universal and Warner's attempts to direct uh, PVOD with their animated films, you know Trolls World Tour and Scoob, uh, this is another harbinger of the potential squeeze on theater- theatrical exclusivity. Uh, most surprisingly is the fact that this comes from Disney, who has long been kind of the studio that's most in favor of keeping the theatrical windows long because as I talked about last week their films are the ones that do best in the in theaters over a long term. Uh, AMC CEO Adam Aaron's uh, relatively muted response to this news compared to his fiery language a few months back in response to World Tour just kind of underscores this. Uh, the same can't be said for all exhibitors though. Many, especially those abroad where you know theaters are already open again uh, because they pretty much took care of coronavirus, they're pretty upset because a lot of them were counting on Mulan alongside Tenet uh, being kind of the main blockbusters that would help drive consumers back to the movie theater and now they've lost half of that um one french theater owner kind of went as far as to trash the mulan display in his lobby in frustration and went a little bit viral as a result okay so that's what's happening uh why did disney what led them to do to make this decision so you know again i've long said that disney definitely is the staunchest supporter of this of the in-theater experience um and the reason for this is that they have higher budgets on their films which require a higher return more than what a vod only re- release would be able to give them so uh mulan black widow and other disney films are unlikely to debut on disney plus 
The exceptions would be films that they kind of saw were going to flop anyway, such as Artemis Fowl, and films that have relatively lower costs that they don't really need to worry as much about um, you know, how much money they're making on VOD because it'll be easier for them to make up. Hamilton, for example, cost them less than half, about $75 million, which is still a lot, but given the number of Disney Plus signups that they likely had, this was probably a good deal. Uh, but a $200 million budget of a highly beloved Disney Renaissance film, such as Lion King, Aladdin, and Beauty and the Beast, well, those three films all made a billion dollars, more than a billion dollars worldwide. Uh, and, you know, about, you know, Aladdin made about $350 million. Uh, Lion King got up to close to $600 million domestically alone. So that's a lot of money that Disney is leaving on the table, even if you consider that, okay, maybe they're only taking home half of that, you know, hundred, uh, you know, maybe, you know, half a half a billion dollars uh you know in um in 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 net revenue to them uh worldwide that's still you know 500 million that's going to be a lot um so you know looking at there, there, i think there are a couple of reasons that might explain this right and, and i think most of them come from the same earnings call where this was announced first disney announced their first ever quarterly loss uh since 2001 it's nearly two decades of consistent uh quarter over quarter profits um they had a 4.7 billion dollar loss uh this past quarter the large driving force of that is of course the 3.5 billion dollars from the theme park division being closed due to covid um, um, but obviously not having a major tentpole summer blockbuster doesn't really help either. The studio division only made $1.7 billion compared to the $3.8 billion last year in the same quarter. Uh, the other key bit of news from the announcement is that they just hit 60.5 million subscribers uh, on Disney+. Plus. This is only nine months after launch. And for context, their original five-year goal was to get 60 million. So they're way ahead of schedule. Um, part of it is probably due to Hamilton driving new subscribers. But, you know, that definitely is the biggest spot of Disney's earning announcement. So taking these two factors, I think the primary motivator for Disney uh, right now is to experiment, right? Obviously... In the U.S., they don't really have an expectation on when uh, the film is going to be able to come to come out in theaters in kind of a massive scale. Um, and so might as well take this opportunity to kind of experiment with the Disney Plus model, right? Especially given that they are kind of, you know, facing a, a, a revenue crunch, um, right? So that any place they can get revenue, at least in the short term, they're going to take. Uh, Bob Chapek said up front, this is a one-off experiment to see kind of how this goes. You know, Hamilton did really well in terms of generating signups. So the logical extension of that experiment would be if, you know, new signups plus a premium upgrade, right? An, in, an in-app purchase, so to speak, uh, if how many current users would convert and how many new users they would be able to get because of Mulan. Um, and then convert, obviously convert those there. You know, if Disney Plus, is what their strongest element of their portfolio is at the moment. It makes sense for them to try to lean into that. Um, you know, from one report, you know, Hamilton was, you know, on, from a panelist, you know, 37% of the panelists on this media company, uh, analytics company, said they watched Hamilton, which is three times more than the next highest streaming title. So they're hoping they can replicate this with Mulan. There are also some other smaller factors in there, right? So, you know, obviously the characterization that coronavirus is a Chinese disease is kind of pretty racist, um, but it, it, it can't be, uh, you know, 
it, that the sad fact is that uh, anti-Asian racism is at a relatively high point right now because of coronavirus. Um, you know, just another example of this is TikTok. You know, the whole situation with them potentially being acquired by Microsoft and being divested from their Chinese whole, um, parent company. Uh, on top of that, so that 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 kind of you know racist you know uh, sentiment comes from generally the right politically speaking. Uh, on the left, you know, you have a lot of people upset at the main actress Liu Li-Fei's statement several months back. Uh, in support of the Hong Kong police against pro-democracy protesters. Um, so there's been a boycott Mulan movement on the left, uh, especially online on Twitter. Now, I don't know if either of those sides, you know, the racists or those who are concerned about Hong Kong's uh, democracy movement, um, you know, is materially enough to impact this film. Uh, but the fact that this film may be battered on both sides certainly doesn't help. Um you know, another fact is that it's a live action remake. While I mentioned that those films, you know, they all did well at the box office. Uh, critically, they have been hit or miss. Lion King in particular wasn't super well received. I personally have some issues with Beauty and the Beast. And a lot of people I know didn't really like uh, Aladdin as much. So, uh, you know, films like Pixar, those are almost all universally acclaimed, right? So that's why I think Soul may stay in theaters, um, assuming nothing changes. Uh, and then MCU films, those are all meant to be interconnected with each other. And so it's really important for them that the uh, that at least the mainline uh, MCU films stay in theaters, hence Black Widow, The Eternals, and eventually Shang-Chi uh, staying in theaters. Obviously, they have the Disney Plus movies, uh, which will be, uh, sorry, the Disney Plus TV shows of the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe that will be coming to kind of supplement that. But the point remains that, you know, a big interconnected film franchise like the MCU, definitely worth staying, keeping in theaters. Mulan, independent film, not quite as much. Um, unlike ten Also, unlike Tenet or No Time to Die, uh, the Bond film coming up, there are no IMAX-specific scenes or even aspect ratios scenes that uh, lessens the need for a theatrical release um, right if, the, if you don't have a you know if IMAX isn't as big a deal breaker for people that are going to go see this you're not giving up that you know uh, extra IMAX revenue since those tickets usually cost a little bit more um, and finally on the business end you know Mulan had prime, had already hit its primary marketing window it was supposed to come out in late March right I was really looking forward to it and then obviously that means that you know beginning of March kind of before the coronavirus you already started seeing the bulk of the advertising kind of coming into play and you know obviously theaters closed down Disney kind of had to pivot and and and, and put a kibosh on that and, and delay it but the point remains they've already spent their marketing dollars on this film um you know and and if they were to start and have another theatrical release and they don't know what it's going to be they're going to have to you know keep on pushing it back maybe like a tenant has been uh you're going to start marketing spending all over again which in a situation where disney is already operating at a loss and you don't know if the theaters in the u.s are actually going to be open at full capacity when they do open you know the more marketing like the more marketing spend isn't isn't what they need right now uh and then finally i think the other last part which i'll talk about a little bit more in a, in a, in a minute is that you know china uh, is obviously a big part of the Disney Plus thing of, of Disney's strategy with Mulan, and if the film comes out uh, in the U.S., if they're waiting on you know the U.S. Uh, to um, you know before the the film comes out in theaters, then that might be waiting for a long time, and they're just putting off you know this potential you know revenue from China, right? Which again they could really use right now. So trying to get it out where the Chinese market is 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 able to see the film again, that's definitely going to be another another part of the calculus here. 
Now, will I think this gambit be successful? Uh, I'm somewhat skeptical, to be honest. Doing the math, let's say Disney has spent $400 million on the movie so far, $200 million on the film, and another $200 million on global marketing. Uh, doing the math real quick, at $30 per digital purchase, uh, assuming Disney keeps 100% of revenue, unlike splitting it 50-50, as they would in theaters, uh, and, you know, no, that... And assume that there are no new Disney Plus member signups for this, you know, just all existing members, they would need 13.3 million accounts to purchase this movie, right? Uh, and this also ignores any revenue that they get from theaters that are showing it in markets that don't have Disney Plus right now. Um, so, out of 60.5 million paying users, which they just announced, uh, that would be about 22%, 13.3 million, of the cur current user base, right? So that's about one in five Disney Plus users need to actually purchase this. Now, as a point of reference, one of the most successful PlayStation 4 games of all time, uh, Spider-Man 2018, has about 9 million, 9 million users buying it, granted at a higher price point, but also on a uh, platform that had a higher install base and also, you know, uh, is kind of one of the premier uh, platforms of the system, right? That's only about a 10% attach rate for one of the more popular superhero, uh, you know, fil uh, video games, you know, of all time on one of the more popular uh, consoles of all time. So, you know, again, movies, video games, not necessarily one-to-one, -one, but it kind of illustrates how massively successful Mulan will mean to be just to break even, not even to say anything about, you know, making a profit beyond what... Uh, beyond what um you know they would comparable to what they would have made in theaters this may just be a case of them oh we just need to get this out there because we can't have it sitting around for too long right um and just at least at the very least break even um a lot of the discourse i've seen online and granted the spaces i'm in may not necessarily reflect the general audience uh it's the 30 dollar rental fee has been seen as a little too high compared you know we've gotten used to the 20 dollar rentals even if it is you know in perpetuity as opposed to you know 48 hours people still don't think the movie is worth $30, um, you know, maybe parents with kids who will watch the movie over and over again, but given one of the appeals of Disney Plus is the large catalog is relatively, is, you know, once you pay the low cost, uh, monthly cost of $7 a month, you have access to a relatively large category, a catalog, as opposed to our, their competitors. I find it hard to believe that parents, especially in a time when coronavirus is, you know, kind of tightening our budgets and kind of tightening our wallets because of, you know, the economic downturn, I don't think people want to sell an extra $30 for this one movie, right? Uh, even if you invite a bunch of friends over to watch the movie to defray the cost, you know, that's what most pro streaming people say, like, oh, you know, streaming at home is better than going to the movies. You know, you can, you know, the cost of the, um, of a movie for two, right, which is, here in New York would be $30. You could just watch at home and get the same value. They would easily pay 40 to $50. I kind of find, the, find it kind of funny that a lot of the dialogue is like, $30 is too much. So, you know, what are people saying for 40 to $50 to watch Black Widow? Like, will people actually do that? I'm kind of now a little bit skeptical of people who make those claims, but um, also given the fact that, you know, meeting up with a bunch of your friends when you should be social distancing uh, makes that a little bit of a moot point at this point in time. And again, these are only, I think Disney's only taking this because of the extraordinary, extraordinary circumstances that coronavirus has placed upon us. So in the end, I don't think this will be a long-term shift for Disney, uh, especially once the pandemic ends, whenever that is. Um, that said, I'm totally open to being wrong. You know, I wasn't, I, I said that, you know, Disney will never premiere Mulan, uh, you know, on Disney Plus exclusively. And here we are. Um, maybe I'm partly right because they're still doing it in, you know, 
in uh, China, um, you know, and, and other markets that don't have Disney Plus first uh, in in theaters. But hey, I I'm totally willing to eat crow um, when when I'm proven to be wrong. So who knows? Um, speaking you know, speaking of China, uh, I had mentioned earlier limited markets that will not have a theatrical release. Um, again, uh, you know, China is one of those markets, and it looks like they have been uh, greenlit, you know, past the censors, which I think they worked with some Chinese production companies, so that that makes sense. Um, you know. Since China does not have Disney Plus, Mulan will be coming to China in theaters. Um, most Disney Plus less markets, Disney Plus less uh, markets, will have the film available on September fourth. Uh, you know, the same date it comes out on you know on uh, Disney Plus itself. But rumors suggest that China will get the film a little bit earlier in late August, potentially as early as August twenty eighth. Uh, this is to help them, you know, since they're the primary market, and to also help stem the impact of piracy of having a you know high definition quality out on uh, on Disney Plus, stemming the impact of piracy in the Middle Kingdom where piracy is pretty common. So, uh, 16 minutes in, that's only the first bit of news. Uh, we'll just keep going, though. Uh, this is a good place to finish this, and let's look at the China box office for the last week. Uh, we had mentioned that Doolittle and Interstellar were doing pretty well over there, while Sonic the Hedgehog had somewhat flopped. Uh, this past weekend, 1917, uh, the uh, award-winning film, premiered to about 5.2 million U.S. dollars, uh, 8.5 out of 10 rating on the popular review site Dubon, uh, good enough to make it at the top of the chart uh, for this week. I think the technical achievement of this pseudo one take really helped it survive any piracy you know even if you pirate a film like this and watch it on your laptop at home uh, seeing it in the big theater is just a completely different experience I think that's why it was able to to do well even though it's been around for months and able to be pirated Uh, in second place is the continued re-release of Chris Nolan's Interstellar in its second weekend Uh, it's crossed I believe it has crossed the 7 million dollar mark for its lifetime gross so congrats to them Uh, in third place Doolittle grossed 16.2 million dollars uh so far across its three weekends um making it the highest grossing 2020 film in china to date in fourth place the re-release of a local film seep without separate two million dollars and in fifth place the long delayed release of last year's uh, film ford versus ferrari about one million dollars us uh coming up on the schedule so let's see we have august 14th this coming friday bad boys for life currently the highest grossing film in 2020 uh it doesn't look like it's going to do too well. Uh, China is unfortunately kind of racist against black people, uh, so this predominantly African-American-led film not going to do too well, unfortunately. Um, and then in, also coming out August 14th is a re-release of the Harry Potter film number one, Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, whichever country you're in. Um, this one looks to be doing a little bit better. The estimates are that it's going to be about $25 million in its opening weekend, which will be the highest opening weekend in China for the year so far. Uh, this could very well get a Harry Potter one over the $1 billion mark for its lifetime release, including re-releases, so uh, fingers crossed there. August 19th, we have Onward, uh, the Pixar animated film. August 21st, we have Trolls World Tour. Uh, August 25th, uh, which I believe is some version of some couple's day in, in China, uh, that is Little Woman uh, coming out as a date movie. And then August 28th, uh, The Current War, uh, a long-delayed film that I don't think is going to do too well. Uh, the rumored Mulan 
release, as well as the in- Christopher Nolan's 10th anniversary Inception re-release, um, as well. So that'll be an interesting battle between Mulan and Inception. Uh, that is a prequel, of course, to September 4th, Tenet, uh, which is the confirmed date for China coming out. Um, given how well Interstellar has been doing and how well I'm expecting Inception to do, Tenet to do really well uh, come its release September 4th. Um, also, you know, relevant to China, currently theaters are current, are set to 30% capacity, um, but apparently this coming weekend they will open that up to 50% capacity, which of course will help box office numbers. Uh, moving to the rest of the Asian market, uh, Korea did particularly well. They had a new film, Deliver Us from Evil, an action thriller, taking home $10 million US dollars home over three days. It made up 78% of the domestic market, about 2 million total admissions uh, across 19, uh, 1997 films. Um, the national to- the total national box office uh, was seven point seven million, uh, you know, um, to thirteen point four million. With last week's top film, Steel Rain Two, taking second place, one point. Uh, 1.48 million uh, for a total of 10.7 over 12 days, and then Train to Busan's sequel Peninsula uh, earned about three quarters of a million do- U.S. dollars, totaling 27 million dollars in just under a month. Uh, looking to other international news, New Zealand unfortunately has its first COVID case uh, since they beat this disease about a month or a couple months ago. So they're closing their theaters back down, unfortunately. Uh, Mexico City is planning on reopening their theaters starting August 12th with a 30% capacity. And it looks like, according to a report from Variety, about 48% or just under half of all global cinemas have reopened up again, up from about 28% a month ago when China had not yet reopened. Okay, moving to the domestic market, looking at the top films, the first new film on top is the Shia LaBeouf-led and David Ayer-directed action thriller The Tax Collector, making $317,000 in 129 theaters for a per-theater average of about $2,457. This was also on top of the number one film on iTunes, though apparently the Rotten Tomatoes aren't super great on this one. Um, In any case, in second place was Star Wars Episode V, Empire Stacks Back, on two 260 uh, screens for an estimated $230,000. And in third place was Jurassic Park with $138,000 on 235 screens. Uh, Last week's number one film, Dave Franco's The Rental, made just under $124,000 for just over $1.2 million total. Uh, also, one fun bit of exhibition news related to my experiences with the drive-in. Apparently, Walmart, of all companies, is going to have drive-in move screenings of films like Black Panther, E.T., Lego Batman, uh, Into the Spider-Verse, you know, and, and more in their parking lots. I guess it's a bit of PR as well as, you know, making use of their empty parking lots, but that's, that just kind of struck me as, as kind of funny. All right. Uh, as a reminder, the upcoming domestic releases are as follows, including some announcements of movies going to streaming. I'm grouping together dates that are similar, such as uh, August 26th and 20 through the 28th. I'll just give one date for that. So, uh, August 21st, Russell Crowe's Unhinged, which is already out on international markets, comes out in the U.S. Reviews aren't super hot on that one, but it is kind of like the first real film, so to speak, beyond indie films that, uh, you know, or art house films that, that we're going to be seeing come out. Um, the Korean film Peninsula, uh, which we talked about earlier, will apparently be having its U.S. release, um, you know, in uh, um, on, on this date, um, you know. They already released in in Canada on about forty seven screens, um, so you know they're they're slowly working their way. Uh, hopefully, New York is open by them. I really want to see this one. Um, 
August 21st also looks to be the first weekend that major studio chains are planning on being open again. This is AMC, Regal, and Cinemark. Um, so August 21st, that will be when you can you know start going back to the movie theaters. Um, hopefully, again, New York has them open here. Um, then next, the following week, August 28th, the New Mutants uh, is going to have their long-delayed uh, open date. Um, there's also going to be a limited release of the personal history of David Copperfield. Um and then Bill and Ted uh, 3 um, was supposed to open September 1st, I believe, uh, both on VOD and in select theaters. Um, but I think, you know, given the news, I'm going to give in a second, um, in order to avoid being crowded out by Tenet and Mulan, uh, Bill and Ted moved back to their August 28th, which they had had at some point. Um, they'll be, again, coming out on theaters and POV on this date. Um, internationally, interestingly, this is also the same date that Tenet will be releasing worldwide and also that China will supposedly be releasing in uh, we'll be releasing Mulan. So you see in some markets, you know, the new mutants uh, is moving later. Um, of course, Mu- Ten- Tenet and, China and Mulan are not competing in China on the same weekend because on September 4th, uh, you know, Tenet is coming out in US and China markets. Um, and this is, again, also the same weekend that Mulan comes out on Disney Plus on uh, any market that has Disney Plus and it's coming out otherwise uh, in non-China international markets in theaters on this date. Um, other than that, you know, definitely, I guess the first weekend, Labor Day weekend of September is definitely going to be uh, the weekend to watch, I think, as well as, you know, also also the 28th. Um, September doesn't have too many other films. Uh, the Kingsman, which is a prequel to the Kingsman uh trilogy or, or series of films uh, is still slated to come out September 18th and then Janelle Monae's uh, horror film Antebellum uh, goes is has announced they're going direct to streaming domestically plus in some theaters internationally on September 18th as well and then finally uh, one, one, War, Warner's Wonder Woman 84 is still scheduled for October 2nd so uh, some other news with no real dates yet. Uh, Anis Chagnati, he was the one who made the John Cho-led film Searching a couple of years ago, uh, which I really enjoyed. His next film, A Run, starring Sarah Paulson, got picked up by Hulu for a streaming release date to be announced. Uh, there was also rumbling. So Paramount, um, they're the big major studio that has not done so well in recent years. Uh, in fact, they are, the, they are the of the big five movie studios uh, still around. The one that has the lowest market share. In some cases, some people think that Lionsgate is actually doing better than Paramount at the moment. Um, so Paramount has kind of sold off most of their films. And I guess this is their strategy of surviving the pandemic. You know, rather than holding and delaying the films, just sell them off, get an infusion of cash uh, and, you know, have their films come out on streaming. Uh, they've done this, you know, with, for example, Lovebirds and then the upcoming trial of the Chicago 7 coming, going to Netflix. Uh, SpongeBob uh, is moving to their CBS All Access relaunch uh, next year. And they also sold uh, the Mark Wahlberg film Arthur the King to Lionsgate. And then without remorse, starring Michael B. Jordan, to Amazon Studios. The only film, really, that they have left is uh, Eddie Murphy's Coming to America, which is scheduled for December. Um, they also have Clifford and the Big Red Dog. I, I I wouldn't be surprised if that one moves also, but the one I'm really interested in is, is Eddie Murphy's return, I guess, uh, after Dolomite last year. Um, so we'll see. You know, There are rumblings that you know Netflix or some other service might pick up uh, Coming to America instead of Paramount releasing it this year. Um, also, you know, not necessarily new films, but, uh, you know, NBC's Peacock streaming service will have all eight Harry Potter films, uh, by later this year. 
And then, you know, on the, aside from the exhibition side, some production news, uh, Disney announced that the next Tron movie starring Jared Leto has been greenlit. Uh, not really sure how I feel about Jared Leto in Tron, but I do love Tron and hopefully Daft Punk comes back. Um, and then Lionsgate announced that John Wick 5 uh, will be coming in addition to John Wick 4. They'll be filming them back to back. And then Marvel Studios uh, is resuming production in Atlanta later this month, uh, specifically focusing on Disney Plus shows, especially the Marvel Cinematic Universe shows, WandaVision, and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Okay, we are 27 minutes in. We'll see if I can get these last two major bits of news in there before the end of the episode. Um, But yeah, I think these are definitely worth discussing. So... Uh, Warner Warner Brothers, right? They are, uh, you know, they are one of the major studios. Um, back in May, Jason Keillor, Kyler, I'm gonna call him Keillor. Um, you know, formerly he was the CEO of Hulu, uh, became the CEO of Warner Media. His predecessor, John Stark, Stark Stankley, Star, Starkly, Stankley, Stanky, um, became the CEO of Warner's parent company, AT and T. Right, so AT and T owns Warner Media. Um, itself, Warner Media itself is a parent conglomerate of multiple entertainment properties. Uh, most relevant for this podcast, Warner Brothers Studio. Uh, two months later, HBO Max, which is again the Warner streaming service, launched with mixed success. Now, this past Friday, Keylar seems to have initiated a internal restructuring of the organization. Uh, without getting too much into corporate inside baseball, the main changes are as follows: uh, Bob Greenblatt, who is the former chairman of Warner Media Entertainment, in charge of development of HBO Plus, he's out. Uh, Kevin Riley, chief content creator of HBO Max, he's out. And then Kevin Kokoza, uh, executive vice president of corporate marketing and communications, is out. While those three are out, uh, Anne Sarnoff, who is the former CEO of Warner Brothers, or I guess current still, um, so he sees underneath Warner Media, right? Warner Brothers is a subsidiary of Warner Media. Uh, she is now going to oversee not only Warner Brothers, but a, a newly formed studios and network group within the company that oversees the production of not only Warner Brothers, but also HBO, HBO Max Originals, and Warner Properties. Um Reporting up to her is will be Casey Blois, uh, who is formerly the programming president for HBO. Um, in addition to that, she will now also oversee original content for HBO Max and other networks. And then Andy Forsell, uh, who I believe worked with Keylar in, uh, in, in, in Hulu several years ago, uh, he's the general manager of the HBO Max unit. Uh, in general, he will now lead a more broader, larger uh, HBO uh, Max business unit, not just being general manager. Now, what does this all mean? Okay, so from one ex- from one perspective, ninety days out from a CEO taking over, it's not uncommon for new CEOs to shake up the structure of the leadership team after you know scoping things out and figuring out where everything lies. So this might just be natural and already planned to happen. You know, ninety days from uh, Keeler's you know ascension to CEO of Warner Media. Uh, on the other hand, the lukewarm response release of the HBO Max platform, especially the botched deal with Amazon and Roku and HBO Max not showing up there, the fact that the two main leaders behind that product are leaving, um, as well as the one who was responsible for the rollout, you know, the, the corporate marketing and communications, they're all out, um, kind of suggests that uh, they're leaving maybe related to HBO Max not hitting the targets that they wanted internally. 
Um, now, you know, that said, NBC Universal, you know, another, you know, major studio, uh, they recently heavily restructured their television operations, not their movie operations, their television operations. So Greenblatt and Riley, who have a long history with NBC, you know, may, they may find an open position there. They can slide into it. I think they'll be fine. Um, and, you know, the other, the other part is, of course, COVID. Uh, how do, much does that factor into what uh, is going on with Warner Media internally, right? Now, you know, uh, as part of this, you know, there are unfortunately for, for some people going to be 800 total layoffs um, for the entire organization. Um, you know, Keylar did suggest that, you know, HBO Max and the global expansion thereof is going to be top priority within the company. Um, I think that given his history at Hulu, uh, apparently early on he wanted to make Hulu more Netflix-like, but the fact that he was kind of beholden to the, you know, tel- traditional media owners who didn't really want that, um, you know, I think he's going to be pushing HBO Max and Warner Media in general to be more tech centric. Um, and you know, g- g- given that a, a parent company is AT and T, who you know obviously stands to gain by having you know more more streaming and and more more streaming on on their internet services, um, as well as the fact that they had a lot of debt. Uh, in 2018 to acquire Warner, um, I really, I'm really curious if this focus on streaming and technology um, that AT&T slash Warner is pushing for under Kilar um, will come at the expense of making sure that they have a robust uh, theatrical experience. Um, you know, I, I, who knows? Like, I, in an interview with Variety, you know, Kilar has said he's committed to the theat- the tenant theatrical release but also expects in the future that theatrical windows will shrink, kind of the same language that Universal uh, and AMC have been uh, have been talking about, which makes that whole deal a lot more interesting. I had said, you know, last week that, you know, Warner, they, they are one of the better studios. They, their films do really well in theaters. Well, if their top of their organization is really focused on the HBO Max stuff, potentially, it might potentially be at the detriment of the in-theatrical experience of um, you know Warner films, and you may see more and more stuff coming direct to HBO Max, as opposed to having a theatrical release. Or at least they may try that. And at the very least, I think Warner might be more open to the deal that AMC is offering. Now, following up on those arrangements, you know, of course, you know, speaking of the AMC Universal arrangements, we'll just follow up on those real quick. Uh, Cinemark's CEO Mark Zarati said that they're pretty firm uh, that. With that they don't want to crush the theatrical window down to 17 days. Uh, he, they said, quote, an aggressively shortened theatrical window could have an adverse impact on a movie's life, end quote. Um, and in Cineworld, the owner of Regal Cinemas also said they don't see any business sense in this particular deal that AMC is pursuing. Um, I, you know, Wildline Podcast is, you know, they're kind of retired at this point, but he, they made a good point last week that, you know, this may be if, if Regal and Cinemark are saying that, oh, we don't really think that uh, there's business sense here, uh, even though they do acknowledge that you know windows may shrink in the future. I think this may be more pointing to AMC's weakness as opposed to a larger trend, perhaps. So you know, it's a matter of time if other studios such as Warner will bite AMC's offer, and if they'll be able to, you know, if it means that they're not going to be streaming uh, and and screening their films on Regal and Cinemark theaters. Um, I think part of Cinemark's ability to stand firm, at least, comes from the fact that they have $525 million uh, of cash on hand, uh, which is their runway that should last until at least uh, 2022, you know, as opposed to uh, AMC situation where they have tons and billions of dollars of debt. Um, you know, Paramount so far of the studios has said they're committed to a window, though, again, acknowledging that it's going to soar in. Um, 
One interesting thing I noted was NATO, the National Association of Theater Owners, you know, they were pretty gung-ho about supporting AMC uh, when it came to, you know, not crossing the theatrical window with Trolls World Tour several months ago. Uh, now they're oddly silent in the face of this deal. So we'll see uh, what's going on there. Uh, speaking of, you know, theaters being kind of in dire straits and, and, and maybe potentially being acquired, the last bit of news uh, is particularly relevant. Um, a New York federal judge granted a motion by uh, by the U.S. Department of Justice to essentially end the Paramount decrees. Now, in the past, I've said that the Paramount decrees are probably worthy of their own box office concept. Uh, and frankly, there's no better time than now to cover them. I'm already 35 minutes into the episode, but screw it. You know, we'll just have a long one this week. Um, so we'll dive in. That's the return of the box office concept segment. It's been a while since we've done one of these. Let's get to it. All right. So context. Uh, film as a medium, you know, a little bit of a history lesson. Film as a medium started somewhere at the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s. Uh, at first, of course, they were all silent black and white films. And then up until the late 1920s, uh, when the most one of the more pivotal films of that age, The Jazz Singer, came out in 1927 with a short segment that was synchronized uh, sound, music, talking, uh, and what was on screen. Uh, within two years, by 1929, almost all films coming out of Hollywood were talkies, as they were called. So with the advent of the Great Depression and, you know, with the, with the talkies gaining more popularity, um, you know, movie theaters were really one of the only form of mass entertainment that was both affordable and also profitable. So Hollywood entered what's known as the golden age of, of Hollywood, right? Um, now, in addition to this, put a pin in that, uh, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 had led many theaters to close and get in dire financial situation. Kind of funny now, given that, you know, coronavirus is doing a lot of the same things to the exhibitors like AMC. Um, so, uh, you know, nowadays the major studios are Disney, who owns Fox, uh, Warner Brothers slash AT&T, NBC Universal slash Comcast, uh, Sony, uh, who owns Columbia Pictures, and Viacom CBS, uh, aka Paramount. However, back then, the big names, uh, so they were the big five uh, were 20th Century Fox, uh, Lowe's Incorporated, who owned MGM, uh, Paramount Pictures, RKO Radio Pictures, and Warner Brothers. Um, these were the five fully integrated studios. And uh, after the Spanish-American War, these studios were the ones who would buy up uh, these uh, these theater chains. Um, you know, Universal and Columbia, uh, they were two other uh, studios that were also owned theater chains, though they were relatively smaller chains. And then United Artists was another major uh, studio, so to speak, um, that ha also had some theater chains, though, again, not as uh, big, but still very influential in the industry. So that's the golden age of Hollywood. Now, because of this vertically integrated system where, um, you know, they owned uh, the... Uh, the studio production, the distribution arm, and the exhibitor, um, you know, there was a lot of things that studios could do uh, that was somewhat anti-consumer looking back. Uh, for one, studios would often have directors and actors under exclusive contracts to appear in their films, and often, you know, studios would kind of dictate the style of film. So that's why there's a very classic uniform style of films from this era, uh, especially in terms of genre. So for example, Clark Gable, who is the king of Hollywood, uh, he was signed exclusively to MGM between 19 
1930 and 1954. So for modern-day equivalent, this would be as if Robert Downey Jr., uh, Iron Man, you know, uh, was signed exclusively to Disney and could only appear in Disney-produced films. Um, you know, he couldn't appear in anything Universal, couldn't appear in anything Sony, etc., etc. Um, so that's kind of ridiculous. Uh, this combined with the fact that studios... By, because they owned their own stu- uh, uh, movie theaters, they would distribute their films to their own and operated movie theaters. Um, that means that, you know, sometimes exclusively, meaning if you wanted to catch your celebrity crust, Clark Gable in Gone with the Wind, you'd have to do so at an MGM-owned movie theater. You couldn't do it at Lowe's or, 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 or definitely not at your mom and pop store or movie theater. Now, that's not to say that, you know, of course, you know, Sometimes studios wouldn't, they wouldn't always have only MGM films in MGM theaters. You know, sometimes MGM would let their films go to other, uh, other studios now, or sorry, other theaters. They were, again, interchanged a lot of the time. Um, and of course, there were also a bunch of independent movie theaters as well. Um, but, you know, studios employed what is known as block booking uh, that was also made things difficult on uh, movie theater, on movie theaters. So, you know, th- studios would essentially, bu- when when they're talking to the theater chain, saying, hey, okay, what, what theaters do you want to book, what movies do you want to book for the coming months? Here's, our, here's what we have coming up. Nowadays, you know, you have to do it per theater, right? So if a studio comes to a, a AMC, you know, AMC will book only one movie, right? Say Mulan, uh, and they'll do it for these select theaters. Now, granted, that's probably going to be most theaters, right? But it, it still very well could be that it's done, um, you know, it, it, it's basically done on a one per theater per movie basis. Um, now, in the old days, though, studios in block booking would bundle together packages of film that they produced. Uh, usually call it box of five, right? So let's say you have Gone with the Wind. That's like one great film by MGM. MGM would block book it to independent movie theaters uh, chains. Um, one film would be outstanding quality, Gone with the Wind. The other four would be middling to even bad quality. So and because of the obligations the movie theaters would have to show these films that they blocked, you know, they're going to have to be forced to, you know, if they have 10 screens, you know, maybe they have to give at least one, two screens per of their theaters to, you know, these these lesser buying films and those kind of losing out. But because they paid the licensing fee to the studios who, again, are bigger and they make up, you know, they have more influence, they're able to kind of bully the, the movie theaters to taking their crappy films, uh, which they probably made for less and they were still able to just get as much money for. That's kind of inherently anti-competitive, right? Um, especially if they were doing this specifically to uh, smaller theater chains and not doing it for their own owned and operated theaters, right? Um, a modern day example would be Marvel, Disney saying, if you wanted to run the latest Marvel film or the latest Star Wars or the latest Pixar, you have to also show their latest attempt at a live action remake of questionable quality, such as Dumbo, or worse, having to show Artemis Fowl, right? If you wanted to watch Avengers. So, uh, this was also made uh, worse by the fact that you know obviously there's no way to preview movies ahead of time, um, so you kind of so you kind of had to just go off of the title of the film and you wouldn't have any idea what the quality would be like ahead of time. So in this way, production and distribution by studios would be able to bully smaller exhibitors. On the flip side, uh, because the biggest studios also owned the biggest exhibition movie chains, they would be able to use the leverage to bully independent producers. Uh, if a small producer, producer, for example, wanted to license their film to a local mom-and-pop movie theater in a certain geographic neighborhood, the bigger chains could essentially blacklist the smaller producers' future films from showing in their big, in their big chains, which would be a death sentence to this independent producer, so they would end up you know, not 
uh, sewing it in the smaller theaters. You would, they would only sew in the bigger chains, right? Um, this is kind of similar to what AMC was trying to do with, with Universal back with Trolls World Tour, but that one was over theatrical window disputes as opposed to being upset, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, trying to, uh, you know, so upset that Universal was showing their films in the local Alamo Draft House or in the art theater, uh, you know, not, not because of that. Uh, and this basically is, you know, exhibitors bullying producers and also other smaller exhibitors. Um, so at the end, at the end, the end result of all this vertical integration was that big studios would bully small exhibitors, big exhibitors would bully smaller studio producers, and because the big theaters and studios were one and the same, they were keep able to keep the competition competition at bay on both angles. There were other other minutia of, you know, anti-competitive behavior, uh, particularly studios would collude and collaborate with each other, you know, maybe uh, AMC or I guess uh, Fox at the time, Fox and uh, um, and MGM would co-own the theater, right? Or maybe they would schedule showtime so that, hey, we'll show our film at 1 p.m., you show your film at 3 p.m., we won't schedule anything at the same time to kind of make it so there's less competition, right? And because they're bigger, they had that. So, Right, that's the background. Now, 1938, the U.S. Department of Justice, Justice sued Paramount as the primary defendant, as well as the other uh, seven major studios, for their anti-competitive behavior under the Sermon Antitrust Act of 1819. Hooray, AP U.S. history. Um, at first, the studios settled uh, with the DOJ in what is known as a consent decree. Essentially, the DOJ would stop prosecuting uh, the studios if the studios followed certain self-imposed rules, mostly involving stopping the practice of block booking and circuit dealing. However, by 1943, the studios were not following these uh, consent degrees, and so they were sued again by the Society of Independent Motion Picture Producers, uh, which the U.S. government again picked, uh, joined in with. So, after the district court initially sided with the studios in 1945, the appeal went up to the Supreme Court, and there the Supreme Court ruled 7-1, the studios had in fact broken the consent decrees and ordered that a new set of decrees that would limit the studios be in place uh, to be determined by the lower courts. The lower courts basically figured out, uh, had brought up the idea of uh, essentially divorcing uh, the exhibitor business from the, the production and distribution business. So movie studios could, in short, no longer own and operate major theater chains um, in addition to their production and, and distribution arms. And so all the defendants were forced to divest their theater chains. And this ended vertical integration in the film industry, nominally barring the other anti-competitive practices of block booking and circuit dealing. The reality thereof is kind of debated, but for the, for the most part, they, they were basically gone. So this is all what's known as the Paramount Decree. Uh, some caveats uh, before we get to the present day. The only studios that were explicitly banned from being vertically integrated were those named in the suit, the, the big eight at the time. Um, some of those, many of those, no longer operate. RKO, for existence, uh, others have been acquired. Disney has acquired Fox. Um, and then, you know, some studios also nowadays uh, were present, but, you know, Disney, for example, they did not have an exhibition arm, so they are technically not bound by the Paramount decrees. Um, likewise, film studios and streaming companies like Amazon and Netflix today, you know, they didn't exist at the time, so they can't have been bound by the Paramount decrees. However, it's kind of been the de facto rule of law, uh, that uh, rule of operation that all movie studios abide by the Paramount decrees. You know, if there is precedent that uh, this is, is illegal for a company to own a major movie chain and also be a production studio, uh, then their lawyers are going to basically say it's a bad idea to try to tempt fate, uh, so to speak, and risk another lawsuit. 
so that's why it hasn't happened. Uh, the Paramount decrees, you know, these basically led to, uh, combined with the rise of television in the 1950s, led to more independent movie theaters springing up across the country. There were also more independent producers, especially more creative producers, uh, who didn't have to follow studio guidelines um, since studios had lost some power. And then also, individual movie stars were able to work with whatever studio they like. Again, studios had less power to compel them to work only for them so that, you know, their films could be shown anywhere, not just their theaters. Well, now that's okay for, uh, you know, and in addition, uh, you know, because the, the studio power was less of a big thing, uh, producers uh, were more reliant now on star power as opposed to studio power. Um, so, yeah. Now, that all brings us to today. So about a year ago, right, so President Trump has basically been on an anti-regulation, deregulation spree, right? The Trump administration and the Department of Justice started looking at antitrust decrees, such as the Paramount Decree, that did not have an expiration date. The argument that they made to the courts uh, when they wanted to appeal this was that it was unlikely that a similar form of collusion between the defendants in the original case uh, would arise, partly because you know some of the defendants are no longer here, um, and and partly because oh yeah no they they know it's bad they're not going to do it anyway without the regulation. Um, uh, some some there was even some arguments that went so far as to argue that even if they did, it would kind of be necessary because of the new landscape of uh, you know streaming and and premium video on demand. Exhibitors and studios might need to do this to be able to compete. Uh, whether you believe that those arguments in the case of in the light of growing media con- consolidation, Disney buying Fox for example, uh, and where studios are trying to uh, vertically integrate again, but not through exhibition studios, but through streaming platforms. Uh, I leave that up to the listener to decide. You can probably guess where I stand on this and what I think is going to happen. Um, you know, uh, the, the, another argument was, of course, that the antitrust regulation back then, you know, maybe it wasn't as robust, but there are more regulations in place uh, that would rec- that would prevent the worst of the offenses. <laughs>